Okay. We have one remaining standing, as he should. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, recite our verse. <laughs> Sorry to really call you out there, babe. Uh, let's recite our verse for this month. Jesus answered, The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. John 6, 29. Very good. You may be seated. Okay, so raise your hand if you're familiar with a Rube Goldberg machine and what that is. Okay, yes. Uh, so a Rube Goldberg machine is a very complicated sequence of mechanisms intended to accomplish a very simple task. Um, all of us, what's that? How about now? Testing, testing. Okay. All of us have seen videos which have remained popular for years, but have become even more popular now since the dawn of the trick shot video in which we currently live in that age. Um, so if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, here's what I mean. You'll have a video uh, with a guy standing on the top of a staircase. And I say a guy because it's almost always guys in the video. Um, I assume because women are generally smarter than men when it comes to common sense. And so they have the wisdom to not waste 26 hours uh, making a Rube Goldberg machine. Whereas a guy will spend an entire weekend doing so without any hesitation. So um, at, there's a guy at the top of a stairs, for example, and he'll put a golf ball into a toy racetrack, which then guides it down the stairs and knocks over a hammer. And then the hammer will fall over and push a beach ball down the next part of the stairs where it knocks over a book. And then the book knocks over a ruler that's perched like a seesaw, and that seesaw goes up, which pulls a string, which sends a matchbox car, etc., etc., etc. And at the end of a couple of dozen really carefully crafted steps, a ping pong ball is dropped into a cup of water, and there six dudes lose, lose their ever loving minds, jumping up and down, celebrating. That is a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, it is named, unsurprisingly, for Rube Goldberg, uh, who was a cartoonist and inventor in the early to mid-1900s. Um, Goldberg began as a sports cartoonist, uh, since that was a thing in 1907, and he became famous later on for drawing cartoons of simple tasks accomplished through incredibly uh, complicated means. And it was intended to sort of be a social commentary on the boom of household technology. Um, so here's an example of one of his cartoons. Eli, if you want to put uh, the cartoon up there. This is a Rube Goldberg original um, from the early 1900s, I think 1931. Um, go ahead, Eli, put the drawing up. Go down to the two slides. The suspense is building, yes, um, for what is next, yes. This is my beautiful wife on uh, the background of the computer. There we go. Thank you. This is the Rube Goldberg original, the self-operating napkin. And so in this cartoon, what we have is one of his more famous characters who goes by the name of Professor Butts. Uh, good luck saying that without smirking. And the self-operating napkin works as follows. Uh, all of the pieces are labeled. So soup spoon A is raised to mouth, pulling string B, thereby moving ladle C, which throws cracker D past toucan E. Toucan then jumps after cracker and perch F tilts, upsetting seeds G into pale H. 
Extra weight pulls cord I, which opens and ignites lighter J, setting off skyrocket K, which causes sickle L to cut string M, allowing pendulum with attached napkin to swing back and forth, thereby wiping one's chin. It's comical. Uh, by 1928, Rube Goldberg's name was being used in various print publications to be synonymous for complicated contraptions or processes. Um, fun fact for the day, he is the first name to be used in the dictionary, in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, as an adjective. And ever since, the Rube Goldberg machine has been the subject of engineering contests and competitions, the center of TV episodes of educational programs, and of course, the ever-famous trick shot video. In September of 2021, just last year, a group of engineers in China set the Guinness World Record for the longest Rube Goldberg machine at 427 different steps. I watched the video earlier and it's pretty crazy. Um, it took the team three months of work to build and design this structure. It has lots of marbles, um, various household items including a phone and a washing machine, and plenty of random things like a fidget spinner and a tape measure. And the entire process takes about four and a half minutes, all to accomplish one simple task. It is the turning on of a light switch. Lights and neon light. In another one of the most famous Rube Goldberg videos, uh, a Chicago-based band called OK Go filmed a music video, and the music video involves things like a falling piano, a full-size moving car, rolling globes, and lots and lots of balloons. And the end result of that video are the members of the band being shot with tape, or, um, paint that's coming out of a cannon, so a paint gun. The amount of work, patience, and precision required to in, uh, construct a Rube Goldberg machine is absolute insanity. And one might argue that you could save a whole lot of time and effort if you just take the ping pong ball and drop it from your hand into a cup of water. But then no one would watch that video, right? The act of the ball being shot into the cup becomes exponentially more valued because of all the steps that lead up to it. When it takes three months to construct, adjust, test, readjust, test, readjust, test, and then perfectly align 427 different moving parts to flip a light switch, then that simple, otherwise completely mundane act all of a sudden becomes world famous. And the longer the process, and the more steps that are added, and the more complex those steps are, the more that simple action at the end will be celebrated. That simple thing at the end is worth more because of the complex work of care and genius that spawned it. I want to present to you the idea today that you are the simple result of a Rube Goldberg machine of innumerable steps spanning 10,000 years of human history. And you are also an irreplaceable part of a machine, of a story, which results in all that comes after you. And that knowledge should change absolutely everything about the way that you feel about yourself. So, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, where we will be reading chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we are in week three now of our series, Worthful, looking at our eternal worth in our identity in Christ. So by a show of hands, how many of you are insecure? Okay, every hand should go up. If you didn't raise your hand, it's because you were too insecure to do that while people are watching. Every single one of us is insecure about something. For some of us, there are insecurities that are absolutely crippling. And many times those insecurities come from places of pain where people have damaged you and the way that you view yourself. Painful words that other people have spoken have the power to change the way that you live and think for the rest of your life. Here's a silly example. A while back, I shared with some of you how I pack my suitcase when I go on a trip. And this is also the same way that I get dressed every single morning. If we are going on a seven-day trip, I will begin by taking seven hats out of the closet. I have a large hat collection, I'm a hat guy. So I'll start by pulling out seven hats and I'll lay those hats out on the bed. And these hats have various color combinations. Then I'll go back to the closet and I'll find shoes that match with each one of those hats. A blue and gold hat, for example, will pair with blue and gold shoes. Then I'll take that hat and shoes combination that's laid out and then I'll go and get a combination of shirt and shorts or pants that matches with that hat-shoe combination. Now, all of these things won't be one color since I'm not a crayon, but all of it will match nicely. So a blue and gold hat with a white shirt that has a blue and gold logo with gold shorts and those will match with uh, shoes that are white with gold and blue. So head to toe, I am going to look like whatever the catalog would have paired those things with in a professional picture. Why do I do this? Well, it began when I was 16 years old. When I was 16, I didn't dress the way that I do now. I just put on whatever was clean and walked out the door. As a 16-year-old boy, I confess that sometimes what I put on was not clean. But I just grabbed whatever was there, put it on, and walked out the door. 
That is until one night at youth group. On that night, I walked into church and up to uh, a group of friends. And there's a girl there named Megan who was one of my closest friends. And she pointed at me and laughed. And she said, what are you wearing? And I looked down at what I was wearing and I'm like, clothes. What do you mean, what am I wearing? And she's like, you're wearing a blue hat with a red shirt with green pants with black shoes. What are you, colorblind? And everyone in that moment began to laugh. And in the moment, so did I, because that's what you do in a situation where you're being made fun of, right? You laugh and you say, ha, 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 oh, this is nothing, this doesn't affect me at all. And then your life changes after that, right? On the inside, I determined I would never make that mistake again. And so for a while, the pendulum did swing in the complete opposite direction, and I would wear outfits entirely consisting of only one color, which also looked ridiculous, right? So, after a while, I learned how to pair colors together and have been doing so ever since, from head to toe. Here I am, perfectly matching. Dude, that was 20-something years ago. And to this day, I refuse to wear clothes that don't match. One simple moment created a lifetime of insecurity. Now again, this is a very small and simple example of insecurity. But I'm willing to bet that every single one of us has much deeper insecurities that affect us a whole lot more painfully. Last week I gave some examples of what the voice of shame might sound like in our minds. So what might the voice of insecurity sound like? I'm not good enough. I'm not as talented or as gifted as someone else. I don't like the way I look. I don't like myself. I'm not special. I'm not useful. I don't have a great purpose for my life. I don't have as much value as other people. No one loves me. I'll do whatever it takes to get other people's approval. What people think of me is of utmost importance. I don't deserve love. I have nothing special to offer. I'll never be as good as him. God only blesses certain people with good genes. I could work out for five hours a day and never look like that. I'm not really making that much of a difference. There are so many other people that are suited for this. I should let them do it. You know somebody else is going to get picked, not you. You're not a winner, you're a loser. No one is going to love you the way that you hope. God sees you as second rate. Just accept yourself for what you are, mediocre. Your clothes don't match, you moron. Like I said, many of the insecurities that we have are the result of painful experiences and painful words spoken by others. And sometimes they're the result of an internal dialogue that's been deeply affected by the enemy. Wherever they come from, insecurity causes you to chase after some arbitrary standard that your mind decides on, thinking that you will only be happy once you have reached it. You will only be fulfilled once you have reached that goal. And then the goalpost always moves. No matter how far you get in your pursuit, you still continue to pursue because nothing ever gets you there. And insecurity puts you in a never-ending cycle of comparing yourself to other people. And here's the thing. Our insecurities have a lot to say about our perception of our own worthfulness. Our insecurities scream at us that we are worthless because we don't have whatever it is they're telling us we should have. Better clothes, a different body, a prettier face, a better sense of humor, more style, or a hundred other things. But here's where I want to offer you some eternal hope. You are inconceivably worthful. And your insecurities are liars. You are a purposely designed, essentially important, 
and highly celebrated creation of limitless worth. Let me show you how. Here's point number one. Your worthfulness is not determined by your resume. Your worthfulness is not determined by your resume. Our insecurities tell us that we are at best unremarkable and at worst woefully deficient in some area. Essentially, insecurity tells us that our worth is determined and defined by our resume. In order for us to feel valuable, we have to compare ourselves with other people and then come out, come out ahead of wherever they are in that area. If our insecurity is about body image, it will tell us that we have to have the best body compared to others. If it's about intelligence, we will have to prove how much smarter we are than everyone else. If it's about achievements, we have to accomplish more than the people around us. Whatever the area is, the worst thing you can be is last. The worst thing you can be is less than others. But remarkably, Paul has a much different view of himself. Much to our surprise, Paul celebrates being last. And not only that, he sees it as a gift that gives him unmistakable worth. Look again at verses 1 through 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, and I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is, the plain, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So in those verses, I, I like to focus here especially on verses 8 and 9. Okay, These verses are my life verses. Some of you have seen the bracelet that I always wear, which I'm not wearing right now because it is under repair. But I have a silver bracelet. And the silver bracelet was the first gift that Allison gave me when we were engaged. And it has the, the reference embossed on it, Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. It is my spiritual identity. Reading again in verses 8 and 9. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, of course, I'm not Paul. Okay, I understand that. I understand that he, in context, is specifically referring to his role as being the person who would unite together the early church, taking its Jewish and Gentile factions which were opposed to each other and bringing them together under one roof. But the calling on my life is to preach the riches of Christ, the same as it was for Paul. I am called to be someone who brings to light the riches of Christ and the message of God in his plan to build his body, the church. But here's what's so crazy about these verses. Paul, who is very clearly in awe of his calling, makes sure that we know that he doesn't have this worth because of anything that he has to offer. He calls himself the least of all the saints. Eyebrow raise. Am I right? Paul is saying that his calling is not based on his ability, his ethnicity, his giftedness, etc. And I think it's very important to point that out. 
Because Paul is not being falsely humble. You know what it looks like for someone to be falsely humble, right? That's usually when someone is just fishing for compliments. Like a girl will say to her friends, I just don't think I'm that pretty. And her friends who are all around her will be like, Regina, are you kidding? You are so pretty. You're like way prettier than us. You are so fetch. Or you'll be playing golf with someone who is a very good golfer. And that golfer will walk up to the tee box and everyone will be like, all right, show us how it's done. And the guy will be like, well, hopefully I can just knock it somewhere I can find it. And every one of us is like, uh, we know you're about to hit it in the middle of the fairway, Gary. All right, you shot 70 last week. Don't act like you don't know how to play golf. And then after his shot, he's like, got lucky on that one. Hopefully I haven't used up all my good shots yet. All right, dude, shut up. You're beating all of us, all right? There's no need to pretend. False humility is just pride wearing a mask. And we might get that sense that Paul is doing this when he says, I am the very least of all the saints. In another translation, it says, though I am less than the least of all God's people. When you read that, don't you want to be like, yeah, Okay, Paul, <laughs> you wrote 13 books of the literal Bible and you were the greatest evangelist in history. But sure, wink, wink, you're the least of all the saints. You're like down there in the doldrums with losers like John the Baptist and Mother Teresa. Yeah, least of all the saints. We got you, buddy. But that's not what's happening here. Paul is not being falsely humble. Paul is directly addressing the way that the Jews of his day typically defined their self-worth. They would list their lineage, and they would list all the ways that they were spiritually faithful to the law as a resume for showing how close to God they were. Paul, in fact, gives us an example of what this looks like. So, if you uh, keep your finger there and flip over one book to Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this in verses 4 and 5. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So the way that he lists off his resume there. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, more zealous than anyone. This was the way that the ancient Jews would view themselves as valuable and worthful. They'd say, here's my accolades. And the Pharisees were so egotistical and arrogant because their accolades were better than anyone else's. And so if you're saying, well, how do I an answer my insecurity? The Pharisees would look at you and say, well, what's your resume? And if it wasn't good, the Pharisees would be the first to look down at you like a peasant and confirm you are indeed good for nothing. We, however, are the worthful ones. But here, Paul lists his resume and he says, my resume is better than anyone. If there's going to be anybody who's going to brag about their resume, no one could brag about it more than me. But then look at what he says next in verses 7 through 11. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he says, whatever was to my gain, whatever was on my resume, I count it as rubbish. The Greek word there for rubbish is the word skubalon. And debates have raged among scholars as to whether or not Paul is using an ancient profanity. I don't think he is. But the word there is a strong word that means dung. What he's saying is, the stuff on my resume, it's worthless crap. None of this has earned any of God's love for me. In week one of this series, we discussed the fact that God loved us before the creation of the world. Before we could do anything to earn his love, he already loved us completely. And we're going to revisit that idea in just a few minutes in point number two. But here, Paul throws his resume in the garbage in Philippians 3. So, knowing that, let's turn back to Ephesians 3. And it makes sense of why he calls himself less than the least of all God's people. He refuses to measure his own worth in the same way that the other Jews would have been doing so. But furthermore, he recognizes something unique about his calling as it relates to his, to his resume. Paul recognizes that he's the last person in the world that anyone would expect to tell others that your resume doesn't matter. The person with the greatest resume is the person that you would least expect to say, resumes are a garbage way of finding your identity. The first chapter of Ephesians establishes clearly that Paul no longer finds his worth in who his family is, what he's done to please God, what he's accomplished, how smart he is, what the community thinks of him, how highly he's esteemed by the church, etc., he only finds his value and worth in the love that God has for him. And I think we ought to learn a lot from that. You and I live in a world that constantly bombards us with messages of merit-based value. You want to be secure? You want to feel secure? Dress like this. Be this size. Talk this way. Eat this food, have this much money, accomplish these things, earn your way into this social circle, act this way, express yourself in this way, fit this mold. And if you don't, well then you're just worthless. If you're not beating everybody else in whatever it is that is your area of need, then you feel completely insecure. But let's think back for a moment to the Rube Goldberg machine. Every step of the process is delightfully simple. There's one move, a marble running down a track, or a soccer ball knocking over a book, or a balloon rising in the air to pull a string. There's nothing amazing or incredible about any of those isolated things. But every single one of those things is beautiful in its simplicity. And every single one of those things has an essential role to play. That's how Paul views himself in the grand scheme of things. He doesn't have to be the greatest. In fact, he doesn't have to be on par. Even deeper, he says, he is less than the least. But that doesn't lead him to be insecure. It leads him to be in awe that God would use him for this purpose. He, he's amazed. He's filled with the, the truth of his worthfulness, not because of his resume, but because of his role. I'm going to repeat that later on, that it's not his resume, it's his role. Do not give power to the voice in your mind that says, people will think you're a fool if your hat doesn't match your shoes. 
or whatever it is that voice says to you, people will think less of you if blank. I am not valuable because of blank. I don't have enough blank. Other people have blank and I don't. Whatever it says, you do not have to accomplish anything in order for you to have worth. As we talked about in week one, God has loved you completely since before time began. This is point number two. You are the result of an inconceivably complex work of of love. I just noticed that that's the second time in this sermon that I have used the word inconceivably. And uh, a particular movie is coming to mind. (laughs) You are the result of an inconceivably complex work of love. You guys, I have been meditating on this truth for the past few weeks. And as I have, it's been changing my life. And that's not an exaggeration. It's been a breakthrough for me. I was talking to somebody earlier this week, and he said, the, the thing that I struggle with is in believing God's love for me. I know he loves the church, but I want to know that he loves me, personally, me. And I'm sure that he's not the only one of us that feels this way. And so what do we do? We chase things that we think will fill the void of insecurity. To make us feel loved. To make us feel wanted. To make us feel valuable. To feel like we measure up. And we keep chasing and chasing those carrots. Never catching them. Never feeling like we're ever going to make it. Remember in week one when I quoted Madonna? She said, I have an iron will and all my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it to discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre or uninteresting. My drive in life is from a horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's something that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. That's the struggle that we all live, right? The struggle to prove that we are somebody, that we matter. It is a never-ending fight to silence the insecurity. So God forbid we ever slow down. God forbid that we are ever sitting in the quiet. The quiet is the worst place for someone with insecurity. Because the quiet is quickly filled with all the negative voices. So you can't just sit at a stoplight waiting for the light to turn red. I'm sorry, to turn green. You have to look at your phone. You can't just lay in bed at night and fall asleep. You have to watch TV until you pass out. You can't just drive in silence. You have to have music on. You can't be alone with your thoughts because then your thoughts condemn you. So you do whatever it takes to drown them out. That thought would break Paul's heart. In fact, it would burden him greatly because he knew how much people struggled with that even in the first century. So look at what he writes in verses 14 through 19. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is on his knees praying and begging God that this church would see how deeply they are loved by Jesus. 
You, you can almost feel the tension rising off the page and, and Paul urging and begging, I just want you to know how loved you are by God. In week one, I talked about Molinism, how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are balanced. And, and I talked about the butterfly effect, which says that if you were to go back and change anything in history, even the smallest thing, down to the flapping of a butterfly's wings, that would dramatically alter all of history. And, and here's what has been blowing my mind in the last few weeks. A Rube Goldberg machine lives and dies on precision and sequence. Every single part of that machine has to be perfectly precise. If it isn't, the process stops right there. If one marble falls where it's not supposed to fall, the entire machine breaks down. That's why it took a team of Chinese engineers three months to set a Guinness World Record. They had to perfectly dial in 427 different parts of the process. I, I wish that there was listed somewhere the number of adjustments that they had to make over the course of that three months. Got to turn this piece a few degrees. Got to adjust the weight of this piece. Oh, Got to tie this piece differently. Oh, we need to, uh, you know, replace this part with a different one over and over and over and over. Adjustment after adjustment. Test after retest. If we assume that they worked normal work days for three months, that would be 2,400 hours. 2,400 hours in order to, to achieve a four and a half minute process that culminates in a light switch being flipped on and then celebrating like they just won the Super Bowl. Now I want you to imagine, if you could imagine that instead of 427 parts, imagine there was a machine with 100 trillion parts and the process of that machine working took 10 thousand years one piece after another every single one of which has to be perfectly aligned otherwise the intended result would not come to pass that machine is called history and its engineer is God and part of the result is you and me. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is addressing a group of scholars in the Areopagus. And he's telling them that there is one God who is in control of everything, and he is the one to be worshipped as a result. That everything happens because of him. He says this in Acts 17. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Did you catch that? Paul, same guy as that, that's talking here in Ephesians, Paul says God started with one man, Adam, the first part of the Rube Goldberg machine of human history. Then from Adam, he made one person after another, after another, and then determined where they would live and what they would be and what they would do. And every single person that comes about is the result of the ones before them. And God did so in order that every person individually would seek God and find Him. Try. Try to wrap your mind around this. There were trillions and trillions of steps that led up to you. If, if even one of them had been different, you would have never existed. And before God created anything, He looked down the barrel of history and made sure that every single one of those factors was lined up perfectly 
in order for you to come about and for you to be who you are so that you would seek him and know how high and wide and deep his love is for you. You, personally, individually. A hundred trillion steps precede you. And I am using that number, by the way, completely arbitrarily because it is far higher than trillions. I'm just using a term that we can start to try to comprehend. Guys, God has spent 10,000 years making you. He's spent 10,000 years to make you. You might not feel like there's anything special about you. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a student. I'm just a salesperson. I'm just me. I'm just a ping-pong ball dropping into a cup of water. Nothing mind-blowing about that. But do you understand the love of God that celebrates you? 10,000 years of intricate steps, one after another, after another, after another, and then out comes you, and all of heaven is jumping up and down going, oh, do you see that? It's an Allison. Oh my God, it's a Justin. Whoa, you see that? There's an Andy. This is amazing. Do you have any idea any idea how much God loves you to spend 10,000 years creating you? You were not just created out of the blue. You, you were not just created 40 years ago, whatever your age is. I'll be 37 on Thursday. Not looking forward to being in my late 30s. God didn't just create me 37 years ago. God has spent 10,000 years creating me. I am the result of a 10,000-year process. That thought should fill you with more worth than you could ever begin to imagine. Nothing and no one on earth can offer that to you. Nothing. Think for a moment about the things that your insecurity says that you need. You need to be that size in order to be happy. You need to achieve that in order to be happy. You need to have this or that. You need to be over there doing that thing. Are you freaking kidding me? You're telling me that what's going to make me happy is gaining 20 more pounds of muscle. You think that you'll be happy once that boy or that girl likes you. How about meditating on the fact that God loved you enough to spend 10,000 years making you? And when you came out of the womb, he threw up his hands and screamed, Yes! Yes! Look at him. Look at her. I love her so much. Paul makes the understatement of history in verse 20 when he says, that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Verse 19, I mean. To know that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You are not just a cog in a machine that matters little. You are an eternally worthful prize of creation that took 10,000 years to make. And not only that, not only are you an individually designed and celebrated creation, you also get to be a part of the story that God is continuing to play out. Uh, here's point number three. You are an essential piece of God's Rube Goldberg machine. Look here at uh, verse 20. Paul says, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Paul says, 
You don't only have an identity, you also have a mission. He says that God's power is at work within you, individually, you. And that with that power, through you, he is doing more than you could ever ask or think. Again, I want you to consider practically what that means. Remember in Acts 17, he said that God started with one man, and from that one man he made all the nations, and then he determined every part of what their history would be, all leading up to people seeking after him and finding him. The number of steps that it took to get to you. Trillions and trillions. What that means is that whatever comes after you is also because he has designed you to perfectly fit in that process. Every single idiosyncrasy you possess, every part of your personality, the size of your nose, the color of your hair, the things that you're passionate about, your strengths and your weaknesses, your fears and your joys, literally everything about you has been precisely fine-tuned and crafted to be just the way it is in order that God might accomplish through you an essential part of the story of history. There is nothing about you that is a mistake. There is no part of you that God created that should not have been created in the way that it was. You cannot look at the maker and say, you made me wrong. Because the maker is looking at tens of thousands of factors and he has precisely dialed in exactly who and what he has made you to be. Zero mistakes. Zero mistakes. You and the way that you are is not a mistake. If God wanted, he could have just skipped all of the steps. He, he could have just skipped the whole thing and gone straight to the end result, the ping pong ball falling in the water. And that would have been having a creation that worships him for eternity. He could have just invented a choir that never stopped singing. He could have done that. But instead, he built this beautiful, wild, dangerous, joy-filled and pain-filled machine of history that would result in a people who freely desired to be in a perfect relationship with him forever. Remember in chapter 2 last week we read in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before we were ever around, God wrote up every part of your personality. He designed everything about you intricately and perfectly. Every little idiosyncrasy, everything about you, he wrote down, he was like, this is exactly how this person should be. That's how they're going to fit in the machine of history so that it all works perfectly together for my plan. Everything about you matters so deeply. Everything about you matters eternally. Everything about you is precisely designed to perfection. Now I want to say, just in case there's any confusion, I want to say that doesn't mean that we excuse sin in our lives. Things that don't align with God's design in the scripture, we can't look at those things and be like, well, God made me this way. I'm born this way. I have this particular sin, whatever. I guess that's part of it. No, God is bigger than our sin, and he's factored that in as well to all of the readjustment that he does in our lives every single day to align us with what is right. 
though he does not depend on us, just like those engineers did with a Rube Goldberg machine where they're constantly readjusting the pieces, God is constantly readjusting in our lives if we allow him to say, no, this doesn't align. You need to come back to the center. And ultimately, he is sovereign, and he's going to do with us whatever he's going to do with us. But he is realigning us at all times, going, come back to the design. Come back to the design. Come back to the design. But everything that he has created in us is exactly the way that it is supposed to be. Your face? God crafted that 10,000 years ago, perfectly in his design. The things that you would love, the things that you would hate, your strengths and your weaknesses, everything about you is a perfectly crafted design. You are full of worth. And do you know what the result of all that will be? All of those pieces put together, all of those things that he's uniquely and perfectly crafted and put in place exactly where they're supposed to go. What it will result in is this. Ephesians 3, last verse, verse 21, it says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It will all lead up to this beautiful result which is the eternal worship of the glory of God. Someday, the ping-pong ball is going to drop into the cup and human history, the way that we know it, will be over. The Rube Goldberg machine will have accomplished its task that God could have accomplished very simply if he didn't decide to create any of us. But he loved us enough to do it. He loved us enough to put in all that was necessary to create all of this that leads up to us and leads much further to the intended result that Christ Jesus would be glorified throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Your insecurity is a liar. A liar. You matter more than words could ever express. Yes, you, individually, perfectly, every single one of you. A perfectly and precisely designed part of an eternal story built one person at a time and the greatest possible result pandemonium jumping up and down screaming so I have to ask have you given your allegiance to that God to write that story with your life are you obeying the voice of insecurity? Or are you trusting in the voice that says, this is my love for you? If you are in a place where I have been for so long, trying to find your value and worth in so many things, hopefully it's not taking you as long as it's taken me to realize that my worthfulness is found in being a part of a story that is so much bigger than me. A story that I have an essential part to play. A story that I was specifically designed for. Which makes everything that I do, every single day, at my job, in my home, with my family, with my friends, everything that I do so deeply, eternally matters. Every dish that you wash every book that you read for school, every mundane task that you do at work, every bit of it filled with eternal value leading up to pandemonium at the end of the Rube Goldberg. Line up with it. Let this be your identity and your story. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of what you created us to be how you created us to be. God, I pray that you would silence the voice of insecurity in our hearts. God, I pray that you would silence the voice that lies to us and tells us all the things that we have to accomplish and do and be in order to be worthful. 
Help us to hold on tightly to the truth of our worth and our identity in Jesus. God, I pray if there's anybody under the sound of my voice who has never given their heart to Christ, who has never come to a place of surrender saying, I need this God in my life to make everything about me matter. God, I pray that you would draw those people to surrender. I pray that you would draw those people to say, I I need to to give my life to you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a part of this church. And God, if there's people who, like me, have struggled with letting my insecurities define me, God, if there's people who have these voices that are driving them, Lord, I pray that they would see the simple truth that you taught us in your word today, that 10,000 years of human history has led to them. And your love surpasses knowledge. And I pray that they might be filled with the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of Jesus. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would speak to each one of us now, that, that you would lead us individually however we need to be. And that as we sing our closing song, that you would do whatever work you need to do and lead us to whatever decisions we need to make. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we'll close in worship.